Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Steph. I got out the house today. Where did I go? To the big building down the road with the trapezoid windows and the IKEA interior. Yes, you guessed it. The International Criminal Court. Yes, I saw the pictures uh, uh, on Twitter from everybody, but I stayed home this time. But I guess we watched the same thing, uh, the judgment of Dominic Ongwen. Yeah, why don't you do some Stephopedia for us and uh, tell us uh, who this person is, what he was charged with and what a bit of what happened. So this case is on Dominic Ongwen. He's now in his 40s, but according to the judgment and the defense, he was taken as a child soldier by the LRA, the Ugandan Lord Resistance Army rebel group led by... Uh, Joseph Kohn. Ongwen himself started out as a child soldier, but kind of rose through the ranks of the LRA. From his 20s, he basically led one of the four major operational fighting units of the LRA, the Sinia Brigade. He came to the court in 2015 after either his defense say surrendering the court or the prosecution said that he was captured or transferred. And he's been charged with about 70 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. There's a plethora of counts, a lot involving sexual and gender-based violence, including legal first, like forced marriage and forced pregnancy. He's also charged with taking child soldiers. And in short, um, in this judgment, he was found responsible for most of this, even though the defense had tried to argue that because of the trauma of being himself a child soldier in the LRA, that he really couldn't tell right from wrong and that he was so under the influence of Joseph Cohen that he was actually acting under duress because he felt that he could be killed at any moment. Let's listen to a bit of how the presiding judge described what happened in Uganda and he made a nice narrative explaining a lot of things from the from the victim's point of view which you don't really hear so much in these um, in these kind of judgments. So let's listen to that. Throughout the period of the charges, the LRA killed and injured a large number of civilians in numerous attacks on individual civilians, DP camps and other civilian locations in Uganda. In response to the question whether shooting a civilian during the course of an attack would constitute an offense, witness P14, an LRA fighter, stated that, quote, nobody would see it as a crime if a civilian is injured or if a civilian is shot at, unquote. The LRA also abducted and conscripted a large number of children under the age of 15 into the armed group and used them to participate actively in hostilities. Witness P307, from his experience of an ordinary senior soldier, observed, quote, as a standard practice, each time we came across people, we would abduct them and take them to the bush. We had to do this, as we had to increase our numbers in the bush. So abducting new recruits was part of routine activities during attacks, so that there was no need for any commander to order you to abduct, because this was part of the job. The LRA abducted and also enslaved a large number of female civilians. They were then used as sexual slaves and so-called wives and as domestic servants. And as he read the verdict, there's a lot of 
complicated legal language, but you could hear that this German judge had really thought that the victims were also going to be listening to it because at the end he gave a nice little summary in more direct language of what this judgment really meant, and we'll play that as well. The chamber has therefore convicted Dominic Ongman of a total of 61 crimes, compromising both crimes against humanity and war crimes. To try to sum up in a few words the lengthy and technical verdict rendered by the chamber, Dominic Ongwen has been found guilty beyond reasonable doubt of a number of crimes committed in the context of the four specified attacks on the IDP camps of Pajule, Odek, Lukodi and Abok. Attacks against the civilian population, murder, attempted murder, torture, enslavement, outrages upon personal dignity, pillaging, destruction of property, and persecution. Secondly, a number of sexual and gender-based crimes he committed against seven women whose names and individual stories are specified in the judgment, who were abducted and placed into his household, forced marriage, torture, rape, sexual slavery, enslavement, forced pregnancy, and outrages upon personal dignity. Thirdly, a number of further sexual and gender-based crimes he committed against girls and women within the senior brigade. Forced marriage, torture, rape, sexual slavery, and enslavement. And lastly, the war crime of conscripting children under the age of 15 into the senior brigade and using them to participate actively in hostilities. Now, this was a really big thing, obviously not only for Ongwen, for his lawyers and for the prosecution, but for the 4,000 plus victims who've been represented in the case and for the prosecution who brought this case uh, at the ICC. So I asked Thijs Bauknecht, uh, he's a historian and he monitors trials and works in Utrecht and Niod in Amsterdam. We were sitting together in a noisy corridor near the ICC media centre, asked him what he struck him when he was listening to the verdict, what he'd been especially been looking for from how the judges put together their verdict. Was he aware of what he was doing when he was doing the crimes? Was he a victim or was he a perpetrator? And I think the judges today were very clear, but also very short about it. He said he's fully responsible for all those things that they've listed today. 61 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And at the background of this case is really a massive debate on victim, perpetrator, and how far can you argue that because he was recruited so young and he grew up in the LRA, that he acted under duress because he was influenced by Cohn and how much can he be held responsible for if he didn't know right from wrong because of the way he grew up. Now, we've uh, had this talk about this before uh, in, on this debate with Shell Anderson, the Canadian academic who spent time in Uganda researching how LRA former soldiers and how LRA victims see these perpetrators. Look out for his new book. Um, we also had him on an earlier podcast, and here's a bit of that. So I came out of all these interviews with a, a very, I guess, a very conflicted perspective on things. And I think that's actually the correct perspective. Not, not that I want to tell other people what to think, but I, I think there's no way to boil his story down 
into a simple narrative of a victim became perpetrator or good became evil. It's really just a very complex story, I think. And as Shell explains here, within the LRA itself, Ongwen was seen as a kind of a good fighter. Uh, but of course, that can mean different things in different societies, especially if civilians are seen as party to the conflict. Everybody I spoke with that knew him in the LRA, or almost everybody, said that he was a good fighter. That was that was kind of his identity. He was known to be to be pretty straight-laced, a good fighter, quite courageous, you know, from the perspective of the LRA. So a very reliable commander. I think generally pretty well-liked by the people who served with him in combat in, in those kinds of situations. But one of the things that's interesting there as well is when somebody says somebody's a good fighter in the context of the LRA, it also means a different thing than, than in the context of the, the Dutch army. And words like mass atrocity are different. There really were some horrific details in the summary of the judgment about how the LRA operated. And we won't be playing clips from that for you. But some of the details were to do with how women were treated. As soon as very young girls started menstruating, they were considered available for so-called wives to the commanders. And they were basically given a choice, some of them between rape and death. And it was really quite harrowing, even just listening to the judge reading out uh, the, the details. Um, as we've mentioned, there were many, many victims in this case. There were many locations involved in the crimes that they were discussing. Not all of the different crimes uh, that have happened across northern Uganda, where the LRA has uh, affected millions of people. But so many people therefore really want to understand what this first case at the ICC on the LRA, on Uganda, really means. Sharon Nakanda is a lawyer from northern Uganda, and on another previous podcast, she discussed how informing the communities on the ground, getting them to understand the process in The Hague, getting them to understand the legal technicalities here at the ICC, it's a real challenge. The hardest part is explaining it to them. I think the analogies that you use with communities are really, really important. The language that you use as as you explain the complexities of these processes. So one thing we tell them from the onset is that this is how you handle your crimes here within the community because they have informal justice mechanisms that they use to handle their own crimes, traditional justice. And then you have this process by an international court, by an international mechanism that you may not, that may approach things differently from what you usually know. So I I know that in some instances we've given them examples of, for example, if there is someone who is mentally ill in the community and they beat up somebody, are they responsible for what they did? Then you see them discuss the issue and then you related to what is happening at the international level. Of course, it's not the same thing, but you must use examples that they understand as as a community. And the questions then uh, are quite interesting because in most cases you have those who tell you, oh, but I was also abducted. I, I had relatives who were abducted. Did they kill people? No, some of them did not. Did they raise to the level of commander? No, they did not. So you had to raise that level of commander because you were doing something that pleased the boss, who was Joseph Kony. So in that case, 
then it becomes it's 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 so hard to tell you exactly what what there is no uniform view on what the communities believe so it's really diverse and it can be extremely complicated to explain so back to today in court what really struck me Um, as Stephanie's mentioned already, is that the judge deliberately named victims in the summary and in the written judgment and really put in their testimony, identified them either by name or by some kind of a number if they're a protected witness. So I asked Tice, um, we were still stuck in that rather noisy ICC corridor, if that also struck him. Exactly, exactly. They haven't done so in any other judgments at the ICC. And I think in this case, the chamber was about writing a little bit of history as well, uh, which they clearly said in the beginning, but also saying that the victims have a right not to be forgotten. And that's why for every um, attack of those four, they listed all the names of people who died, who suffered, but also who survived, and also they named some of the perpetrators. So we're going to see a judgment littered with names, um, and these victims will just not be forgotten. At least they're on record um, until the appeal, I would say. After listening to the judgment, I also uh, tracked down one of the authors that I've always enjoyed who writes on perpetrators particularly, and he's written on Dominic Ongwen. That's Mark Drumble. He's at Washington and Lee University in Virginia, and I asked him for his immediate thoughts. He started by thinking with me about how we're all commenting on this, how this has become a big issue for many of us who follow international criminal law. And then he continued by comparing this with a previous case at the ICC, that of Thomas Lubanga, who was tried and convicted for recruiting and using child soldiers. And he said, you know, look, in that case, it was very definitely put forward that being a child soldier would affect you for the whole of your life. And that really wasn't something that was reflected in this judgment on Ongwen. I'm not on social media. I don't do Twitter. But I'm imagining that Twitter feeds are, are in a frenzy. There's excitement. There's anticipation. And sometimes I think all of the focus on him that in some instances began already before 2005. I mean, this is a long running case. You know, I think of Dominic in my conversations beginning in the early to mid 2000s about him and the whole complex political perpetrator notion that emerged in the 2000s. My older son was born in 2007 and he's now 13. And I look at him and I think, what would you be like if you were in that context? So this has been going on for a long time. And I wonder to some extent whether in our absolute focus on Dominic, we've turned this trial into a bit of a circus. The ICC gives us very little. It's finally given us something to talk about. And I can't help but wonder whether there is something dehumanizing in this particular circus for him as a defendant. And I also think it reflects something intriguing about us as commentators in the international criminal law space, which is we're no different than the legal space that we comment on. Namely, we are also absolutely fascinated 
with perpetration and in some ways much more fascinated with perpetration than we are with victimhood. So as a result, our questions about him are less to see him as an imperfect victim than as a tragic perpetrator. And herein, once again, lies, I think, representationally in this uneven marriage that law gives to Dominic Anguin. He's a perpetrator victim, but he's really still a perpetrator. I think that shows to me a broader reality that law people are much more comfortable dealing with perpetration than they are dealing with victimhood. And it's no surprise to me then that international criminal law has risen to become representationally this first among equals narrative about how best to obtain justice and other forms of justice that place the victims in the driver's seats that we're much more skittish about. So those are some, some of my overall reactions. It's a bit of an anticlimax to me. It's not a surprise. It's a bit of a disappointment to me, unrelated to the verdict, but how it was arrived at. It was very traditional. Also to me, this big inconsistency between Lubanga and Ongwen arises, whereas in Lubanga, child soldiering was seen as so exploitative to the young person that she or he could never recover when they testified as witnesses against Lubanga. Now in Anguen, his experiences were given far less weight than the experiences of at times adults who had been child soldiers in, in Lubanga's forces were given. And, um, and I think law might not have a lot going for it, but one thing it needs to have going for it is predictability and consistency. And I do see that as an inconsistency. So how will they go on? Well, this is a judgment. They still have sentencing hearing and sentencing, and we are likely to have uh, defense bring up again the trauma of being a childhood soldier as a mitigating circumstance. But it is a very, very long list of charges. 61 of the 70 he was charged with are proven guilty. So what would this mean for sentence? We asked Thijs Bauknecht. It's a massive list, right? So 70 counts. Um, 61 of which he's been found guilty. Um, if, if every count counted for one year, it would be 61 years. That's, that's a long sentence. But I think the maximum for these type of crimes is 30 years. Um, so the judges have to sit um, and hear from the prosecutor and the defense, of course, what they want. And they haven't stated that uh, yet. Um, but I think they really have to look into the question of whether there are mitigating factors. Most important thing that they said today was Dominic Ongwen himself was abducted when he was nine. So that basically means that he was six years, at least a victim, um, as a child soldier of the Lord's Resistance Army, and only later on became a perpetrator from his 18th birthday. And so at the sentencing hearing, the defense is definitely going to bring up the issue of duress again and the trauma of, the, of being a child uh, soldier as a mitigating factor. Uh, when I talked about this case before with another one of our former uh, podcast guests, Barbara Hola, who also focuses on perpetrators, she says, you know, it's very, um, law is very binary. You're either a victim or a perpetrator, and it's really not designed for this kind of in-between 
uh, imperfect uh, perpetrator as Ongwen is. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see it. For today, the defense kind of seemed shell-shocked. Uh, they have to read, of course, the entire judgment. But Ongwen's lead attorney, Crispus Odongo, said how he was feeling as he was being interviewed by Al Jazeera and Janet listened in. He landed the defense like a bombshell, like a bombshell, because we did not expect the level of, the, 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 the way the court made its findings. Because if you had the way court was, uh, you know, reading their findings, it was sounding like it was a narrative of the, of the prosecution case. So a bombshell for the defence. Um, Stephanie, did you pick up what the prosecutor had to say? I, I assume that they were just pleased. Yes, they put out a very kind of general statement. Obviously, this is the first LRA case that really came to a verdict. So they're really pleased about that. They said how important it is for the victims. They briefly acknowledged that, yes, he had all this trauma of being a child soldier, but stressed again that, as the judges did, that he committed these crimes as an adult and that they were kind of happy that the judges went along with them in that. I imagine also that uh, for the Ugandan authorities, this is like, uh, I mean, it's 17 years since the situation in Uganda was first referred to the ICC. And now finally, we've got uh, a guilty judgment. So um, I imagine, again, the authorities in Uganda are just saying, OK, fine, thank goodness, we've just got it done and gives them again a little bit more legitimacy, you know, that that they uh, get that sense that the ICC is on their side in some way? Could be. I'm not too sure of the kind of nuances of Ugandan politics in this. You could also say how in 17 years did the ICC manage to do something that we are not managing? Because in Uganda, there's also another LRA commander on trial, which is the Coyello case, which is not moving forward. So for a long time, these two cases were compared and now you have Ongwen and a verdict. So the ICC manages to do something that the Ugandan authorities apparently don't manage. So I think there can also be a criticism for that some foreign uh, court has to bring justice when the Ugandan uh, authorities are unable to. And what do you think overall? Good day for the ICC? I think it's a very complicated day for the ICC because it's very hard to, on the one hand, rejoice a verdict that you want because these are horrific crimes and he did commit them. On the other hand, he is a kind of poster child of the kind of victims that the court wants to help. So it's it's a, I think it's a kind of difficult sell for the ICC that this was a former child soldier that they put on trial because obviously... As Mark Drumble said in this other case in Lubanga, they had this big thing about how bad it is to be a child soldier. And I think that Ben Suda puts out a statement how horrifically damaging it is when that happens. But yet now you've argued that somebody who underwent that is still uh, completely responsible for what he does afterwards. So I think it's a very, it shows that international law is a lot more messy and a lot more gray areas than than if you're super idealistic, you would like to believe, maybe. I'm sure we'll carry on debating that um, for many years to come. Speak to you again soon. Speak to you. Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. 
You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Well, you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well at asymmetricalh. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.